0: Welcome to the October 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. Since it's October and Halloween is just around the corner, it seems like the perfect time to learn about how to interpret those unusual symbols that we find on the tombstones of our ancestors. Joy Neighbors, the author of the Family Tree Cemetery Field Guide, is going to be here to help us out. Then Diane Southard will be here to answer an unusual question. How do you test the DNA of a parent who has passed away? Sonny Morton will then take us back to the cemetery, the digital cemetery that is, at the Find a Grave website. And she's got a lot of tips for you to help you find your ancestors at Find a Grave. And then we'll wrap things up over at the desk of the editor of Family Tree Magazine to hear what you can look forward to in the next issue. But first, it's time to hear about your genealogical journeys. And we're gonna do that in Tree Talk. in the Tree Talk segment, we love sharing your genealogy stories. And this one I want to share with you today was written by reader Devin Morellas. And I apologize, Devin, if I'm not saying your last name exactly correctly, but it's a wonderful story. And it's a story about a Portuguese immigrant. Manuel de Lima Morellas was my grandfather, my vovo, He was born on the western coast of Sal-McGill Island on 7 February 1921, a paradise in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean. The island is one of nine volcanic islands that make up the Azores' archipelago, several hundred miles west of Portugal. Today, the islands are fondly referred to as Europe's version of Hawaii and sought out as a tourist destination. He was conceived in the aftermath of the First World War, merely steps away from the crisp ocean coast. My great-grandfather was Manuel de Lima Marellas, born in the town of Ganete on 26 October 1855. He was a small business owner with a variety store and served as an alderman. The township was home to some few hundred people in those days. His market share was small while he represented the villagers at council meetings. He served his community for many years before retiring and finding love. He married my great-grandmother at an old age, as a senior citizen, in fact. Maria Angelina de Jesus Cabral was born in 1887, 32 years his younger. Before meeting Maria, he presumably had children with another woman, but together he and Maria lived in a small village near Ganeitz, where they raised a family. My Volvo grew up in the great generation. Life after war saw the island remain status quo. Financial turmoil and social inequity were hardships he and the family faced. His age group lived through new innovations in technology and witnessed the introduction of radio and the telephone. The world was changing rapidly, yet in the midst of global warfare, the Azorian people still carried on and procreated. He was the youngest of four children but never knew his grandparents since being introduced so late. He was named in the honor of his father— and was the only son to produce offspring, which carried the family name to the next generation. He was brave and resilient, leading our family to life in a new country. Heading true north, strong and free, Canada took him in where he forged a new chapter in our history. The Marele's name has scattered around the world since its inception, and descendants reaching exotic places on all continents. Even so, statistics can demonstrate how the name is spread infrequently and remains uncommon in many regions, including Canada. Our family is aware that we came from Sal McGill Island. However, when and how they arrived is still a mystery. My Vovo grew up to be humble and soft-spoken. Even though he was a very quiet man, his presence was never unnoticed and he caught the attention of many. He was quite sophisticated as a well-dressed, well-mannered, and extremely handsome man. He was ambitious and worked hard to carve out a new future for us. Landing in a country that provided safety and opportunity, he did what he needed to to provide for the family. We all miss his words of wisdom and his great love for us. Thank you so much, Devin, for sharing your story. I did my very best with the pronunciations, but your writing is absolutely lovely. And if you listen to this and you're thinking about the genealogical discoveries that you've been making, why not share them with the rest of us? Email your story to Tree Talk Stories at familytree at yankeepub.com. That's familytree at yankeepub.com. A walk through a cemetery when researching ancestors could be a little haunting, and yet a beautiful and reflective experience. And aside from the names, the birth dates, and the death dates, there are sometimes clues and even secrets embedded in the tombstones. Here to help us decode some of those symbols is Joy Neighbors. Now She's the author of the book, The Family Tree Cemetery Field Guide, How to Find, Record, and preserve your ancestors' graves. Hey, welcome to the podcast, Joy. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, of course, before I start asking you about tombstone symbols, some of the things that we see on the tombstones in the cemeteries, I'd love to hear how did you get interested at first in cemeteries, enough to write a book about it?
1: It all started years ago. Um, my husband and I met college students, didn't have a lot of money, and so he took me out one evening to a picnic in the cemetery. And when we finished eating, we walked around the lake and we looked at the stones, and I realized this was more than just names and birth and death dates. There were symbols, and there were um, different kind of abbreviations, and there were carvings. I wanted to know what they were. So I did a little bit of investigating. Uh, of course, life gets in the way, and it was uh, we had a winery for a decade and had to close due to the recession. My husband said, what are you going to do now? And I said, I think I want to write a blog. And he said, oh, a wine blog? And I said, no, a cemetery blog. Because <laughs> said, I can do all this research and get all these answers. And so um, his, his attitude on that was, well, that ought to be good for about six weeks. So next February, I'm on my 10th anniversary of a grave interest, and I, it has just been amazing. I have learned so much. I have been able to share what I've learned with others, and it just keeps going. And symbolism has always um, kind of um, appealed, I guess you could say, to me, because it's like a silent language. So figuring out what they're saying really did mean something for me to understand who that person was that was buried there.
0: Wow, 10 years researching cemeteries. But, you know, there's so much there. And I'm curious, you know, you've been looking into what's there in the... um, the carvings, like you said, and the symbols and things that we see on tombstones, but when did those first start kind of showing up on tombstones? Has that always been a thing or is that a little more recent? We have actually uh, used symbols to tell
1: stories for thousands of years. Uh, It's a way that um, our ancestors conveyed their thoughts and their emotions, and yet they layered in some meaning to that also. Um, For this country, it was the Puritans, the colonial Americans, who started doing a little more. They were doing death's heads, skulls, crossbones. Um, By the 18th century, we had the Grim Reaper. So they were trying to remind the living of their mortality, but they were still trying to instill the fear of God in those that were left behind. So their symbols were a bit um, morbid, we might think of today, but they were getting a message across, and that is where, in our country, we started paying attention to that. Now, by the time we get to the 19th century and we get to the Victorians, uh, these folks loved secrets, and for them, they could tell uh, something very personal about the person buried there, or they could really give out a of story if they used enough symbols and everyone understood that language. So it's kind of cool to go back to these stones from the, the 1840s to actually through the early 1900s, and you can see those symbols and try to figure out how they were weaving a story with them.
0: What are some of the most common ones that somebody might expect to see? And, and would we see different common ones here in the U.S. versus, let's say, in England?
1: Uh, most common will be the cross. Uh, and there are, there are several types of crosses. Uh, there's the Celtic cross. Um, you see the IHS on the cross. Uh, you will see, like, the Latin cross, the Christian cross, uh, the Catholic cross. But that is the most common of any symbol. Also very popular is the urn that is draped. And the urn is representing the vessel, the body, which is now empty. And putting that shroud, that draping over the urn, is actually kind of indicating that veil between life and death. So some of those are very um, intricate yet very interesting when you start digging what they were getting to on that. Uh, An empty chair. It's not extremely common, but when you see one of those, it is just, it's amazing. You know that that is a vacant place someone left in the family, and that's how they are conveying it. Uh, The broken column, uh, you do see a lot of those. Those are representing a life cut short. So there are a lot of them that that do give us those signals, the flowers especially. Uh, roses are the most popular, those, and lilies. A full-bloom rose is showing you someone who died, of course, in the bloom of life. But if you see a rosebud, it's usually a child or a young teen who lost their life before they reached their full bloom.
0: Wow, so they really bring beauty to the stone, but they're also telling another part of that story, and probably even more effectively than if they had tried to, you know, write it out. There's only so much space there. What are some of the most unusual symbols that you've run across in all your um, trumps through the cemeteries? Um,
1: animals are really interesting because you don't see a lot of them. Uh, Lions are usually at mausoleums, and they are standing guard. Uh, Sphinxes are another, uh, similar to the lion, also usually a pear, and uh, that became very popular in the uh, Neo-Egyptian period in the 1800s, and they are showing strength and protection. Dogs, very loyal, very vigilant. You will see uh, maybe just a statue of a dog, or you may see a dog carved into the stone. The birds are representing uh, the flight of the soul. So doves are the most frequent birds you will see, and mainly those are on the stones of children because they're representing purity and peace. Uh, Kind of unusual is when you find an eagle. Now, you may find that on a large military stone representing uh, a group of war dead, but sometimes you will find that on an individual stone, and that shows that they had courage in battle and that they did have a military career. Um, There's, of course, my favorites are the tree stones. Those are very popular in the Midwest and Texas, and usually um, the Northeast and toward the West, you don't find them. But they are representing life and knowledge. And for a long time, modern woodmen of America and woodmen of the world used tree stones as a part of their fraternal organizations.
0: When we enter a cemetery, would we see any of this symbolism anywhere else? I know you, sometimes you'll walk through gates or there'll be mausoleums or, or the um, caretaker's house. Anything else we should be keeping our eyes peeled for? I always
1: suggest that people go up and look in the mausoleums. And I've had friends tell me, I wouldn't do that on a bet. But there is some of the most gorgeous artwork in there. Um, Tiffany actually designed windows for mausoleums. So if you go and look in there, you're seeing some very rare artwork that few other people have seen. And it's just astounding uh, what is there. So definitely, if you're in the cemetery, take the time to walk up and peek in a mausoleum and look at that stained glass. It's just gorgeous.
0: Fantastic. Well, we've been talking to Joy Neighbors, and she is the author of The Family Tree Cemetery Field Guide. Joy, tell us just real quickly, what's this book going to do for us? Should we take this in our backpack when we head to the cemetery?
1: Definitely. Uh, It actually has a coated front so that you can wipe it off if you get it dirty. Not a big deal. There's a place in the back you can take notes. Uh, Feel free to take it with you to look things up. And then when you get home, you can pop it open and see how you can go ahead and post your findings on Billions of Graves, how you can do that on Find a Grave, and share your knowledge with other people, because we have a lot of ancestors
0: out there. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to have a link in the show notes to take you to Joy's book, as well as um, Courtney, our own Courtney Henderson here at Family Tree Magazine has an article on the family tree magazine websites called hidden meanings of gravestone symbols. So lots of resources for you and certainly check out Joy's blog. Joy, tell us again the uh, URL address for your blog. Uh,
1: It is a graveinterest.blogspot.com.
0: Well, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much, Joy, for uh, giving us a little more insight into the symbols on tombstones and cemeteries.
1: You are welcome. Thank you so much, Lisa Louise. It's been a pleasure.
0: We don't always get a chance to get a parent's DNA tested before they pass. And in today's DNA Deconstructed segment, your DNA guide, Diane Southard, is here to explain what you might be able to do about that. Welcome back, Diane.
2: Thanks for having me, Lisa.
0: I was looking at your recent uh, Family Tree magazine. It's a premium article called DNA Q&A. It was how to DNA test a parent who's passed away. And you answered a really interesting question, in fact, I remember I had this question for you just a couple of years ago. The reader in the article they um, asked you, "My father passed away before he could take a genetic genealogy test. Is there anything we could have done to test his DNA? What do you tell people in that situation?
2: Well, I think this is coming up more and more as um, you know the, the popularity of DNA testing becomes you know, real, it, it, it is solving family mysteries and we are seeing it break through brick walls. And, and I think that people are, are, are catching this vision and, you know, like so many things in our lives, we just think things are just going to stay the same and we've got time to do this and we've got time to do that. And then time runs out and, and you begin to, to panic a little bit and, and think, Oh, I should have done, a lot of things before this moment happened. And I've received several phone calls uh, from people in this situation where they just were completely unprepared for the passing of a parent. And now, more than ever before, feel this urgent need to preserve whatever they can. And so it, it is something that I'm asked relatively frequently, actually.
0: I imagine so it is it is interesting how we think oh yeah we're g- we're going to do that but we don't always get to predict what's going to happen are there options i what could somebody do in a situation like that
2: well there there are options thankfully um so the the sample collection methodology by each of our DNA testing companies can differ so for example, if you want to test with 23andMe or Ancestry DNA, you have to have a saliva test. They have that tube that you have to spit in until you get enough saliva and you turn that into the company. Now, that's obviously not going to be an option when someone has passed away, but we have other companies. We have Family Tree DNA and Living DNA and My Heritage DNA who all take cheek swabs. And so you don't have to have that actual saliva, but you can just scrape the inside of the cheek. So theoretically, it is possible to collect this kind of DNA sample after someone has already passed away. The key is the kind of sample swab that you use. It's not just a Q-tip you're going to buy from the grocery store. These are special swabs. They're called Dacron swabs. So what you want to do is make sure you get the right kind of swab. And the best way to do that is actually to purchase a paternity test from your local Walgreens or CVS. So there's a company called Identigene that provides paternity testing for people that are in need of that kind of service. And you can actually buy the kit for like, I think it's like $10 or something at the Walgreens. And then when you turn it in to actually have the test taken, that's when you pay pay. The real money for the actual test, but of course you don't need a paternity test. You just want the swab, so you can go to Walgreens. Uh, you can actually find on the Identigene website. You can see all the the stores that carry their kit, and you can walk into the store, buy that kit for ten dollars, and you take that and you use those swabs to actually collect your sample. Then you can contact MyHeritage or Family Tree DNA or Living DNA and ask them, okay, I have the sample now. How do you want me to get it? to you and then they can take over from there.
0: Right. And you know, that's not always something that somebody realizes. Now, let's say somebody has passed, do you, they give that test to
2: the mortician? What do they do with that? Yeah. Yeah, so the mortician they're very well versed in how to handle and how to how to cleanly take and preserve bodies. And so that's another thing you you want to make sure that it's it's done well to have the best chance of actually getting the sample. Uh, but beyond that, it, it's also really important to, and, and it's going to be so hard. I I can't even imagine all the things that are, that are happening in your life at this moment. Um, and even to be even thinking about needing a DNA test is, is something significant, but we need to also consider, would this person have taken this test if presented with that option while they were alive? Um, I think it's so important to preserve the wishes of our loved ones even after they have passed. And so while this methodology can certainly be used for anyone, if you've approached a family member in the past and they've said, no, I don't want my DNA sample taken, and then you proceed to do it after they die, I don't think that's the best ethical decision that you can make and so it's really important that even in death we're preserving the wishes of our relatives even if we desperately wanted your, their dna if it's something you'd never talked about with them before maybe you'd want to consult with their with their spouse or with other siblings for example just to make sure it's something that everybody agrees they would have wanted had you gone through with it in when they were alive
0: oh i agree with that and you know it was about five years ago or so, when my husband's mother passed away suddenly. And I remember calling you up and you walked me through this. And, and the beauty of the Walgreens and the paternity test is that that's available immediately, because you only have a few days to make yeah. a decision and to take action. And of course, his mother was fine with the idea that we just had never gotten around to it yet, because we didn't know that we we needed to do it right away. And it's it's wonderful to have that information and have it done and to know that there was at least an option there. But as you said, planning is always the best way. It's a little easier as well. Well, we appreciate your advice on that. And of course, the article that uh, Diane wrote about this subject is DNA Q&A. It's how to test a parent who's passed away. It's um, available on uh, it's part of the premium membership at Family Tree Magazine. We'll have a link in the show notes. Um, Always good to talk to you, Diane. Thank you so much for your help. Thanks, Lisa. Take care. Find a Grave is home to the world's largest collection of gravestone records and it's all free. So here to tell you more about how to use Find a Grave to build a bigger, better family tree is Sunny Morton. She's the author of the Family Tree Magazine online premium article. It's called Find a Grave, Seven Strategies for Successful Searching. Welcome back to the show, Sunny.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me today. And especially on a topic like this. This is a fun topic.
0: Oh, and it's just perfect for our little October kind of Halloween type episode. Um, You've got seven strategies. I know we have just a few minutes here on the show. But uh, tell us, where do we start? Let's talk about search. How do we search at Find a Grave?
3: Well of course that like every genealogy website that's what we go there for right is the search box is the first thing we look for and this search box is powered by ancestry so it's pretty powerful you can put in a lot you can put in a little um, you can use wildcard characters if you're not certain of a name spelling, and the article has more about that. You can add nicknames. You can add the name of a first-degree relative. So there's a lot that you can do to make your search more targeted, or if what you know just doesn't seem to bring up the results, you can also widen it a little bit. But one tip that I realized afterward is not necessarily spelled out in the article. So this is extra just for you, Lisa, Excellent. and just for everybody listening, is that the Default search is just for the exact name spelling. So that's what, if you just run a search on a name spelling, you're only going to get results for that name spelling. You need to choose the similar name spellings option in the search in order to activate it once you do it, it's wonderful it just you know your search results might just explode so because right. uh, ancestry is powering that and it's going to recognize similarly spelled names but when you start out that search process you are just going to be getting matches for exact spellings of names so the search box is great spend lots of time with it repeat searches refine them you're not going to break anything it's a great place to explore and play
0: Well, that's a really good reminder that every single website, even though they have what looks like the same search field, is going to really make different assumptions about the searching and other sites, you have to tell it, you have to actually opt in to exact search. So you're saying it's going to kind of default to exact search. And then we need to alter it and go to similar searches. And you mentioned wildcards. So or, you know, like search operators, what kind of wildcards can we use at Find a Grave?
3: So um, you could go in the article for a little more specifics, but you can use wildcard characters for unknown letters. Like if oh, you don't nice. know if Hanson is spelled you know, S-E-N or O-N, or you're just even trying to read a document and you're not even sure it's Hansen at the end. It could be Hansor or maybe that's a, an R at the beginning of the name and it's Ransom. And so it, you can substitute these little characters like you would a wild card if you're playing poker, <laughs> you can substitute <laughs> these little characters for letters that you're just not quite sure about. And the site will show you more how to do it, it makes it really easy.
0: So tell folks what they're going to be finding if they're new to find a grave We assume it has something to do with cemeteries, what kinds of information is going to come back at them?
3: So the basic unit of data, what you're looking for when you um, enter those um, search terms, what you're looking for is a memorial. So it's a landing page, a dedicated landing page for one person's burial place. That's why it's called Find a Grave. So all of these um, search results are organized around a person's burial place. And that burial place, just like are real-life burial places. This burial place is considered sort of a, a place to um, honor that person's life and to collect information about them and to to, to sort of gather. That's, that's sort of their spot. So you get people contributing information and primarily related to that person's passing. So you're going to often see you know a memorial created because somebody went to a cemetery and created uh, and took pictures of all of the of the different gravestones and then uploaded them transcribed them made them searchable and then gradually people add more things to it so you might see somebody has added an obituary to it someone has linked this person's profile to, or their memorial to their parents memorials or their children's memorials uh, photos tons of photos great photos that i found to people and something that i thought was really fun is that When people add images to find a grave memorials, it's not just relatives who are doing this, even though a lot of relatives do. Um, And I'll give you a quick example. Yesterday I was on on Facebook and I noticed that Elizabeth Shone Mills commented on finding um, a, a picture of a man that was associated with her family but was not a relative. She found it in her family archive and she found his find a grave memorial and she attached that photo. She uploaded that photo to it to share with that person's relatives, she's like, well, he's not part of my family, but and I know there's a lot of people who find orphans heirlooms, orphan photos at at sales or antique stores, and they make it a hobby to return those. And this is one place that people return those um, images or family memorabilia is to these find a grave memorials. It's when you sort of think about it, it is this this gathering place to honor the person's life.
0: What a fantastic way, an easy way to give back. And we all have pictures, like you said, of people who aren't in our family. What a wonderful idea. Now, you mentioned that, is it that Ancestry owns Find a Grave? And if so, would we be expecting to see Find a Grave showing up in our Ancestry searches? Or do we really need to go always specifically to the Find a Grave website?
3: That's a great question. So Ancestry does own Find a Grave, but they committed when they purchased it that they would not only keep it free, everyone respecting that this is all user submitted and collaborative information but that they would make it even better. And they have kept that commitment. So it is still free. You can search on Find a Grave, but because Ancestry does have that relationship with them, you will see Find a Grave results in your search results over at Ancestry. You can click on those to see a summary of them, or they'll say, hey, the full profile is over here with all the information at Find a Grave, and you can click right through to that person's memorial.
0: Fantastic. Gosh, so you've got, like I said, seven different strategies in this article. What else have you got to share with the listeners today?
3: Well, you know, there is so much that we can't fit it into the few minutes we've got here. But I think one crucial bit of advice, I spend a lot of time in the article talking about how to use the information you learn on Find a Grave, not just telling you what's there, but as genealogists, we want to know how to use what we see in front of us. And just like on any other genealogy website or anywhere online, you need to look carefully at what you see and decide for yourself what is there in terms of evidence for any assertions that are made how do i know that this person's you know i see a memorial that's linked to this other person as her mother do i see any evidence of that relationship other than that somebody said so and linked them oh i see that the tombstone names the child i see an obituary it's been uploaded that associates them as mother and daughter i see so you look for the historical records that people attach to it Um, and their expertise or sometimes you just reach out and ask somebody say well hey I see you you made this assertion can you tell me how you know this because I'm very interested in this piece of information so you just want to make sure that you look with an optimistic but a critical eye at what you see on find a grave or anywhere else and research it or verify it to the extent that's needed before you're confident that it really goes in your family tree.
0: So very much like the online family trees we might be seeing at Ancestry or other websites, we take it with a grain of salt, and we need to prove it out ourselves. Because I, I imagine even though the overall memorial is very accurate, there might be something that's tossed in there that's a little off or doesn't quite make it.
3: There could be, and even, you know, the tombstone itself could have information on it that is mistaken, not meant to be wrong, but it could be. So, like any kind of, even if it's historical evidence that we find, it could always be wrong. But when, especially when we're looking at something that's compiled by a lot of different people, maybe, or or that doesn't necessarily require it to show historical evidence, we're always sifting behind what they say to see how they know what they say. (laughs)
0: Excellent, excellent point. And before I let you go, you mentioned the linking. Re-emphasize that a little bit because I think that's interesting. It's it is again similar to like trees that people are linked within. So we can use that to our advantage as we're kind of exploring the site, right? Exploring the family.
3: Absolutely. So what you'll see on many pages, on many memorials, is you'll see links to other memorials identifying this other person is this person's mother. This other person is, here's a list of their siblings. Here's a list of their children. And so what you're, you're not seeing a family tree in front of you. Right. But you're essentially seeing a family tree in front of you. So that's, and that's, it's again, it's what somebody has said is the family tree. And so you'd want to verify that relationship yourself. But you're actually seeing, two different kinds of groups and the first is going to be these sort of little family trees that come out of these links to between memorials and the next kind of group you're going to see is a geographic group because once you've found somebody, I the next step I always take when I found a relative's memorial, and I'm super excited, is that I hit search for more people with this last name in this cemetery. Because yes. often people are not buried alone. They're buried around loved ones. And maybe somebody I haven't thought to think of or to include is somebody who's I got married and I didn't know their maiden name, whatever it was. Sometimes I'll find a whole trove of relatives all buried together. So people are associated in Find a Grave, both by these lineage links and the geographic links of being buried in proximity, whether it's the same cemetery or the same little town, maybe they had a couple cemeteries, but that proximity also helps you to make associations.
0: Well, that's good advice. Sometimes when we're looking for one person, when we find a memorial, it's not the end. It's actually the beginning, perhaps to finding so much more
3: branches of my family tree. uh, Find a grave as a starting place.
0: Well, if those of you listening want to explore Find a Grave, Sunny's got a whole lot more great strategies for you in her article. It's called Find a Grave is seven strategies for successful searching. It's part of the Family Tree Magazine online premium membership. Sunny, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise on this.
3: And thanks for having me.
0: Before we wrap up this episode, let's head over to the editor's desk and hear about the latest from Andrew Cook. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Lisa. Hey, I know that the uh, November, December 2020 issue of Family Tree Magazine is going to be out pretty soon. So what have you got lined up for us?
4: Well, Lisa, as a lot of our listeners will know, we're celebrating a big anniversary next year. And I'm talking, of course, about the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower landing in Plymouth. And so to celebrate that anniversary, we have Chris Child from the New England Historic Genealogical Society to talk about how to research your Mayflower family and what the best resources are for that.
0: Oh, that's great. I know a lot of people have been talking about that and trying to figure out if they have Mayflower ancestors. So this this article is going to help you figure all that out, right?
4: Oh, yeah, definitely. And I know there are a couple big databases that just came online between FamilySearch and the, the New England Historic Genealogical Society. So a lot of great resources for people.
0: Excellent. And what else are we going to look for in this issue?
4: So this issue also has our annual list of the 75 best state websites, which we put out every year. It's a state-by-state listing of the best genealogy website, and so we get to cover a lot of really great, often underused resources here, and like I said, it's every U.S. state plus Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia, so no matter where in the U.S. you're researching, we have a website for you.
0: Excellent. Fantastic. Okay, so lots coming up in the uh, November, December issue. When's that coming out?
4: It has already shipped to subscribers and it will be on newsstands beginning October twentieth.
0: Oh, perfect. All right. Just probably if you're listening to this podcast, right when it comes out, you're just about a week away. Well, I know you have a lot going on over at Family Tree University. I think last month we talked to Amanda Epperson, the e-learning producer. Uh, anything new that we should keep our eye out for?
4: Yes. In October, we have some of our most popular courses, including Ancestry.com and How to Master Your DNA Results. And we also are excited to have newly revised versions of our German genealogy course and even a course on making a family cookbook, which will be a great uh, project to take on right before the holidays.
0: Oh, that's a great idea. It would make a really good gift. Absolutely. And I saw, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, you were doing a reader and listener survey. And of course, we have lots of listeners. So tell us about the survey and how they can get involved in that.
4: Yes, we'd love to hear our feedback from our listeners, as well as our magazine and newsletter readers to learn about what are you interested in genealogy-wise and how you're uh, engaging with us on social media or subscribing to our newsletter. So if you're interested in taking that survey, you can visit surveymonkey.com slash r slash Mag. That's m a g. And uh, everyone who takes the survey will receive a free copy of our Genealogy Brick Wall Busters ebook, as well as a chance to win a Visa gift card. So a lot of great reasons to give us your feedback and get involved with our family tree community.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, I'll be sure to put a link to the survey in the show notes for this October 2020 episode as well so that you guys can get the free download and let the folks at Family Tree Magazine know what you'd like to read about and hear about here
4: on this podcast.
0: Sounds great. Thank you so much, Andrew. Always great to talk to you. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me for this October 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. You can find the show notes for this episode with links to the websites we talked about at familytreemagazinecom podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, Oh, help us out, won't you? Head to iTunes or your favorite podcasting app and give us the top rating. We would love to have your support and your ratings will help other genealogists find the show. So we thank you so much for that. And of course, we always love to hear from you and you can get in touch with us at familytree at yankeepub.com. And do you have a friend who's a genealogist who's never listened to a podcast before? why not share the Family Tree Magazine podcast with them? Bring a little happiness to their ears. Open up the show in your podcast app. I'm looking at Apple Podcasts, and there you just tap the three dots, and there is a share button there so that you can send it to your friends. But thanks again for joining me. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I'm the host of the Genealogy Gems podcast, which is also available through all the major podcasting apps, as well as the host of Elevens is with Lisa over on YouTube Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.